I'm Alicia Michalisek Kurtz, and welcome to Real Talk, a place where doctors and other healthcare professionals share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. On today's episode, we'll hear a story from Mike Kasner, an emergency doctor from Kansas City who recorded his story with us in an online video conference Real Talk session last week. I have to be honest. We have lots of great stories coming up on this show, but these days, it's hard to talk about anything other than things related to COVID-19. This pandemic has been, simply put, pervasive. It's affecting our jobs, our income, our economy, our practical everyday life experience from things as big as vacations and weddings to things as little as being able to turn on your favorite sports team on Friday night or to make a toilet paper run without extreme anxiety about whether or not the paper product section will be completely barren when we get to the store. But it's affecting us in more personal ways too. It's affecting our relationships, our ability to gather, to share meals and drinks with our family and friends, to touch other people, to hug people, to experience human intimacy, to be physically present. And it turns out that as humans, we really need that stuff. In fact, this idea of being physically together, of sitting and sharing stories with one another, of, of leaning on each other for support and sharing joy and sorrow and victory and loss, this is literally the thing that Real Talk is based on. This concept that, as humans, an essential part of our experience on this earth is sharing that experience with other people. We are nothing if not part of the family, friend group, work team, or community we belong to. Our story is incomplete when it's kept to ourselves. It takes on meaning and becomes a part of us when we share it with others. And with all this social distancing and isolation, physical and emotional separation from our loved ones, we're faced with this new challenge of figuring out how to let video chats and emails or phone calls and texts replace that in-person connection we so desperately depend on. But let's be honest. Most people are at least bending these rules, right? Even those who've been good about sheltering in place and social distancing are, in reality, defining a small circle of family and friends that they see regularly and then trying to limit their contact to that small group that they're closest to. The thought process here is simple. We need each other. And if none of these people in your small circle are sick, then they can all be together and they'll be okay. No new exposures, no COVID-19, just your tight little circle. But for the healthcare workers on the front line of this thing, it's not that simple. It turns out that every time we leave the hospital, we could be physically bringing our work home with us. We could be the vector that brings coronavirus into our little circle. We are the thing that could put our loved ones most at risk. 
And of course, we use personal protective equipment and we take every precaution not to. And there are thousands of comments from healthcare workers on every social media platform out there talking about the various ways people are deconning before they go home and how they're doing their very best to minimize this risk. But the risk is still there. And in some cases, even a small risk may just be too high. This is Mike's story. My boyfriend Patrick and I met uh, on vacation in August of 2018. Uh, mutual friend of ours, David, organized a, a trip to Cape Cod, to a town called Provincetown, for a small group of us. Uh, we you know, meet up in Boston in the baggage claim area. And I remember seeing Patrick for the first time and thinking that he was the most beautiful man I had ever seen. Um, I mean, of course, being a millennial, like I did my homework and stalked everybody on social media, but in person, uh, he was even more beautiful than he is in pictures. Uh, and fortunately for me, we actually really hit it off on vacation. We all had a great time, but Patrick and I had this very immediate connection with one another. Um, and I remember, you know, a couple of days into vacation, we were at this pool party and we go inside to make ourselves another adult beverage and uh, mm -hmm. we're talking to one another and we had this moment. I just asked him, I was like, can I kiss you? Uh, and he said yes. And it was a real good kiss. And the rest <laughs> of vacation was fantastic. Um, and, you know, at the end of the week, you know, we all leave and I go back to Chicago and Patrick and the other guys go back to Kansas City. Um, but, of course, we keep in touch and, you know, we text and and FaceTime and, you know, made the decision that we wanted to try a long distance relationship. And so uh, that progresses with, you know, daily texts and FaceTime conversations and visiting one another, me flying down to Kansas City, he flying up to Chicago. Um, and things were going great, like really, really well. Uh, but then, then Patrick started getting uh, these headaches. And at first, you know, you didn't think too much of them, but they progressively got more intense and, and more frequent. And then there was one night when Patrick uh, and I are on FaceTime and he was telling me he had just gotten home from the gym and he was telling me, you know, I got another one of those headaches while I was at the gym. Um, but it was really bad and, and I couldn't get my body to do what I wanted to do. He, he knew like what exercise he was trying to do, but there was this disconnect between his, his brain and his body. Um, but he was feeling fine now on our, our phone call. Um, but for me as an emergency physician, uh, that was a, a red flag to me. Um, and I told him, I said, Patrick, I don't want to scare you, but you really should go to the emergency room near you and get this checked out. Um, so he agrees and he goes to the emergency room. And um, I'm so grateful for the physician that saw him there because he did a really good thorough neurologic exam and realized that Patrick had a visual field deficit. Um, so the doctor orders a CT scan, a CAT scan of his his brain and they find um, some bleeding. So they admit Patrick to the hospital um, and I, uh, the next day, you know, fly down to Kansas City to be with him. And in retrospect, I should have been more specific with him when I said to go to the hospital because 
he drove himself as opposed to, you know, having his roommate take him or me telling him to call 911 to have an ambulance take him. And that the day that I got there, he wanted something out of his car. So I went to, to go to his car. I found it in the parking deck. And he had parked literally in the center of two parking spots because he just, the whole, not the whole, but a good portion of the right side of his vision, he just wasn't even processing. (laughs) So, you know, disaster averted, I guess, that could have been even worse. Anyway, so um, they find this bleeding and that leads to more scans and tests. And um, Patrick goes in for surgery. um, And from the operation, they discover that the reason for his bleeding is that he has metastatic melanoma. And it was particularly frightening for me because when I was in medical school, there were really no good treatment options uh, for this cancer. But we we learned uh, that in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of advances in a field called immunotherapy. But one of the downsides or one of the drawbacks of immunotherapy is that it has trouble getting into the central nervous systems. So I made the decision to move down to Kansas city um, so I could be with Patrick and help him through his treatments and everything. And, you know, it's been about a year and he's gone through multiple surgeries, has had recurrences of his tumors, um, has had complications from them, but, uh, but he is tough as nails because every single time he's gotten through them and, you know, starts to make a recovery, but then there's a setback with like a new tumor or a complication or whatnot. Um, but the the good thing with the immunotherapy is that it's done a really great job keeping the cancer from going anywhere else in his body. So he has essentially had almost completely clear scans for the rest of the body. And because of that, um, a couple months ago, his oncologist, who we adore, suggested that Patrick try a, um, a chemotherapy. It's called Timidar. Um, he had a scan where every single tumor that is in his brain that they haven't been able to get to surgically is shrinking and significantly so. And it's been so incredible for him and for us. And because really in over the course of his treatment, it's been the first like really good news that we've gotten. Um, But then, you know, of course comes along COVID-19, which everyone around the world is dealing with now. And so me working in the emergency room, being an emergency physician, I am exposed to patients who have this. You know, all of us in healthcare that are that are working right now have been exposed to patients who have this. And for us, I think I could speak on everyone's behalf when I say the two things that are very scary for us as as doctors and other healthcare providers is that coronavirus, the virus that causes COVID nineteen, doesn't make itself known all the time. Um, I could be seeing someone who has a broken arm, who has no issues related to, you know, fevers or anything like that, but they could still have COVID-19 and just not know it. And then the other thing that's, that is tough is that we also right now have no idea who is going to get sick from this and who could get it and be just fine. Um, you know, we have some studies that suggest certain risk factors, but there's just no way of knowing. Um, so Working in the ER, I am high risk. And with Patrick being on chemotherapy, one of the the drawbacks of being on his kind of chemo is that it can suppress his immune system. So Patrick is is high risk for potentially getting an infection and having trouble fighting it off. And so when the COVID-19 outbreak started, 
we started having a conversation of, well, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to address this living together? And what we, uh, what we did was we sought out advice from multiple different sources who are experts in infectious diseases. And we made the decision that we would try social distancing within our house. So I moved out of our, our master bedroom and, and bathroom and moved most of my stuff into our guest room and have been using the guest bathroom. And even within the house, we kind of kept our six feet apart. So we sit, would sit at opposite ends of the couch and, you know, not have any physical contact with one another, which, you know, is not ideal, but you know, fine, we could work through it. Um, and, you know, every day if I worked, you know, I would shower at work and come home and take off the clothes that I wore from after showering from work once I got home, um, you know, multiple times a day, we, you know, I would wipe down our common touch surfaces, like in the kitchen and doorknobs and that kind of thing. And then in Kansas City, we started seeing more and more COVID-19. And there was a shift in particular where I had a patient come in who is in respiratory distress, who, if you had told me everything about that patient before this pandemic, I would have said, this person is having a heart failure exacerbation. This is what I'm going to do for it and get them better. You know, it's something we see so commonly in the emergency room that it's it's doesn't even take a whole lot of thought for me to, you know, take care of this person and get them feeling better. But because we were seeing more of the virus in our area, before I went to that person's room, I had this moment of, well, I think this is a heart failure exacerbation, but could it be COVID-19? Or could it be COVID-19 that's causing their heart failure exacerbation? Because in medicine, just because you have one thing doesn't mean you don't have another thing. And, you know, it could very well have been both. So I, you know, took care of the patient, um, but I came home. And that was when it kind of really sunk into me that I could be bringing home this virus. And I wouldn't even know it. Um, and putting the person that I care about Putting the person I care about most in this world at risk for for getting really sick, um, and obviously, like with everything he's been through and how much he's had to go through, like that would be devastating to me if I if I got him sick, and if he was one of those people that gets really sick from this. Um, so we had another really good conversation and decided that. The best thing right now and the safest thing would be for us to live apart. Um, so uh, we packed up, you know, a lot of his stuff and um, drove over to his parents' house and had this really great, you know, night. We had dinner together with them and a lot of laughing and, and that kind of thing. And it you know, got, started getting later and, you know, kind of getting to the point where I needed to head home. And <laughs> we said goodbye to each other and, it was so awkward, of course, because of social distancing. We're standing, you know, a few feet apart. Not the six feet apart, but, you know, cut us a break there. Um, but we couldn't even hug each other or kiss each other or do any of the things that normal, healthy adult relationships do when they say goodbye to one another. And it was very reminiscent of, like, having a, you know, boyfriend or a girlfriend in high school where, you know, <laughs> you, you, you go to say bye to them, but your parents are in the next room. So you're kind of like, okay, well, bye, you know, I'll see you later. Uh, so it was just kind of one of those moments where it was just, you know, it was sad, but also funny at the same time. Um, 
So, so we've been now for, you know, I guess almost three weeks at this point, um, living apart again, uh, and kind of our relationship has gone back to the way it started where we FaceTime multiple times a day and text one another. And and it's, you know, it's been tough, but it's been okay. Uh, obviously, you know, things could be worse and there are greater hardships out there, but, uh, we earlier this week were talking uh, over FaceTime and um, at one point he, he says, I want to come home. Um, and that was really hard to hear because of course I want nothing more in the world than for him to be home too. Um, but it's, it's just not safe. And the thing that was really frustrating has been really, you know, hard. It makes me angry is that I can learn everything I can about this, this virus and how to treat people and what we think you know, is, is going on with it. But I, I can't answer that question for him. I don't know when it's going to be safe for him to come home. Um, and, and so that's been really tough. Um, you know, but, in a, in a way though, it's also a testament to the love that he and I have for one another, because you, when you really love someone, you, you realize that just because they want something and just because you want something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And sometimes loving someone means doing the really hard thing, even though you both don't want to be doing it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's obviously been really hard for us both, um, I don't have the, my normal support system when I get home from a hard day at work and he, you know, he's at his parents' home where he grew up, but that's not his home anymore. You know, that's, he's not sleeping in his bed and, and their cat is not our cat and our dog. And it's, it's just, it's just, you know, a challenge for him there too. And I recognize that for sure. Um, so, you know, I, we're, we're doing the best we can. We have good days and we have bad days. Um, but we're getting through it. Um, but I think that's the thing that's, that's scary for a lot of people in healthcare right now is that this virus is so difficult and so unpredictable that those of us that do what we do, who take care of other people, that is a part of us. Like that defines a huge portion of who we are just as people. Um, and I think for us and really any of the other essential workers right now, um, where you take a lot of pride in what we're doing, but it's also at the same time very scary for us because, you know, we we don't want to have something happen to the people that we love. And so I guess I'll, I'll close my story by saying, uh, so I know Patrick is going to listen to this at some point, <laughs> and I want him to know that when he comes home, when he comes home, he better brace himself because I am going to give him the biggest hug. (laughs) I'm going to give him the biggest hug that I've given anyone in my entire life. And I want him to know that I love him. And I, I can't wait to be with him again. Mike's story is powerful, and he's not alone. 
There are hundreds of doctors and nurses and hospital janitorial staff and security guards and all kinds of other frontline workers out there who are struggling with these same decisions. Am I safe to go home to my kids? To see my brand new little niece or nephew? To spend time with my aging parents who only have a limited time left here on Earth but are so high risk for bad outcomes if they do get sick with COVID-19? This is what it means to be a true public servant. To love our families and our friends, but to also love our job. To care about the health and wellness of complete strangers in our communities, so much so that we would give up our own support systems to keep going to work, to keep being there for the sick people that depend on us. Rain or shine, flu season or COVID-19, 24-7, 365. We are all going to have scars when this is said and done. We will need time to heal and recover from such an aggressive and abrupt change to the life that we're used to. But for now, when you're feeling fed up or irritated or you want to argue with the experts saying that we can't loosen the reins just yet, think about people like Mike. The people that are giving up more than most of us are who are literally putting themselves second or third or fourth to keep you safe, to keep your family alive, to make this handful of months of struggle translate into years together that may not have otherwise been there. Even if it's hard to see past how done you are sheltering in place with these people for right now. A huge thank you to Mike Kasner for sharing his story with us, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Head to www.vituity.com forward slash Real Talk for more information or email us at Real Talk at V I T U I T Y dot com.